0: When someone tells you it's not healthy for you to need external validation and compare yourself with other people, it goes in one year and comes out the other year. It was, it's something that I, I had to, at one point in my 20s, just come to terms with the fact that I need to measure my self-worth based on who I was yesterday and who I am today, because that's in my control and I can always aim for an exponential chart upwards from there. But when all these external factors come in, it becomes so out of my control and it's so anxiety-filled and it's just the wrong metric to measure yourself by.
1: Hey everyone, this is Jay.
2: And this is Angie.
1: And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two.
2: Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that, share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Priya Saiprasad, the youngest and only female partner at Mayfield Fund, one of the oldest and most respected venture capital firms in the Valley. Previously, Priya was a founding member of Microsoft's investment arm, M12, where she launched the firm's female founder competition as part of her work to make access to capital easier for underserved female entrepreneurs.
1: In this episode, we speak with Priya about how Pilates was a wake-up call that helped her overcome a need for external validation why we should aim to be respected instead of being liked, and how to find your voice in the workplace as a young woman of color. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Cross the Lines. Today we have Priya Sai Prasad with us. One way that we're looking to start our podcast and make this a recurring tradition that we ask our guests is, what was your favorite dish growing up? So I wanted to ask that for you. What was your favorite dish growing up for you?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question because my, my parents aren't well known for their cooking abilities, nor am I. And that sort of stayed with us over time. But the one dish that we can always sort of remember is, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's KFC's Bucket of Fried Chicken. We did take out so often. And when we moved to the U.S., we discovered KFC for sort of the first time. And it was like sort of this moment over a bucket of fried chicken, bringing the family together. And it encapsulated the fact that we're this Indian family that's eating Fried chicken, American takeout, and like loving every moment of
2: it. I love that. How many pieces were in there? Was it like the 20 piece, the forty piece? The <laughs> we, would,
0: we would get a forty piece because we were a family of four then we we always had pets so we would we would include them in on the fun too.
2: <laughs> I love that. That leads us nicely to this unique upbringing that you had you know a kFC I think is a very archetypically American food, but You grew up in 12 different countries before you were 12. You know, I'm sure there was some foods from (laughs) each of those cultures and also some learnings and takeaways on how that shaped your identity and how do you view yourself. Love to hear about that.
0: Yeah, it's somewhat unique because I feel like as an adult, when you hear about people traveling to twelve different countries in, in such a short time frame, it's super glamorous and exciting. And and I would think the same thing. But as a as a child, during your sort of most pivotal growing ages, like right before I turned into a teenager, I had already been to sort of 12 different countries. And and you know, every time you move to a different country, sometimes we were only there in, in a particular country for about a month or two, and so every time we would move to a new place, you're sort of starting from scratch and you're sort of reinventing yourself and you know you may have met your best friend, but you have to move and make another best friend and so it was it was actually somewhat challenging as a kid and then to adapt to an entirely different culture and different languages and things like that but on on the prose side, you know it definitely made me I'd say much more resilient and also it's very easy for me to make new friends and talk to different people and sort of relate with any different type of person from any different type of background. So I love joking with people that I naturally don't have a lot of these biases that that we hear about a lot nowadays where to me it doesn't really matter where you're from. But on the flip side of it, you know, it always has its pros and cons, but I'd say on the con side, I've always had to sort of reshape myself to fit into different cultures, different people, and so I always almost turn into a chameleon for a lot throughout my, my teenage years, and only when I went to college and then after college did I realize that it's kind of exhausting having to like reinvent myself for different groups of people to give them what they want and who am I really and take this sort of existential step back and who do I want to be? Who am I? What am I comfortable with? And if certain groups of people don't like that, you know, it is what it is and sort of be comfortable with that. That's definitely been like a struggle for a few years.
1: That's a really interesting point. I resonate with that a lot of having a strength of being able to fit in with a lot of different groups of people, but then somewhat being confused of then who I am and what my core beliefs are and values are thinking through more of who Priya is instead of who Priya is amongst all these different types of groups and communities. How, how did you go through that process? Like what, what steps did you take to actually start thinking about that and, and where did it lead you?
0: I'd say speaking from a cultural standpoint, you know, I am Indian, I identify as that, my family is, and I'm super proud of it, but there have been moments where, you know, I grew up, I guess, during my teenage years in the U.S. in a predominantly Caucasian community, and so so there were years where I, I feel like to some groups of people, I was not Indian enough, and to other groups of people, I was Um, a little bit too Indian. And it was one of those things where I feel like nowadays we live in a world where people are genuinely much more open to sort of different cultural backgrounds and they want to learn. And the the stigma of being the other is so much less today. And I, I feel so great about where our world honestly is heading towards. But it wasn't necessarily like that when I was a teenager. And coming into college, I went to Berkeley. I love it so much because it's a true melting pot. When I came to Berkeley, it wasn't just me plus a bunch of Caucasian folks. It was, you, you've got every single type of um, person over there from a background perspective and ethnicity perspective, you know, however you want to slice and dice it. And so I think over there, that's where I started realizing there's so many different types of people. And it's not like, oh, this is an Indian person. This is a Latina person. This is, this is a Caucasian person. Within that you have so many different sort of identities and who you are. And I can identify with people of different races so much more than sometimes even my own race. And so that fluidity just became so much more apparent in college for me. And I actually ended up dating and then marrying someone who's actually a Taiwanese American, which is, which is also very unique. And so it just ended up being where race became something that I was proud of, but it didn't fully sort of you know, own everything about what I thought about myself.
2: This conversation is reminding me of this concept or this phrase more so of the courage to be disliked. (laughs) I remember there's a book that's named this and it's been on my reading list for a while, but something about that is so poignant. The idea of shaping truly who you are, agnostic of how you want to fit into the general fabric of the environment you're in. And I think especially as someone who's not in the majority group, it's, it's incredibly hard
0: yeah it truly is, and I think at at some level, everyone loves being liked, but there's sort of different degrees of how much you want to be liked, and that's sort of shaped by how you were brought up and and you know mm. your family values, things like that and I definitely i'd say for a large chunk of my existence <laughs> have always barred towards caring too much, what sort of people tend to think about me and if if someone doesn't like me especially professionally, if someone doesn't like me, it was something that I just like could not get over. And it's taken, it's taken a lot of time to realize. And actually when I was at Square, Sarah Fryer, who was the CFO at Square at the time, had told me that it's so much more important to be respected than being liked. And this was, this was one of those dichotomies that, that You know, it's easier said than done, (laughs) of course. But once you let go of sort of the bar of does someone like me or not, and then you go into am I conducting myself in a way that makes me proud? And am I working extremely hard? And do I have my entrepreneur's best interests in mind, my fellow VCs and fellow partners' interests in mind? And once you know the answer to that is yes, you sort of more skew towards the, the, I'm comfortable being respected, and whether you like me or not, that's sort of on you.
2: You mentioned a bit about upbringing here, and I'm I'm really curious how that might have tied into this deeply imbued desire to be liked, you know, because I felt that a lot too growing up, and it's something that I'm actively trying to unlearn. I'm trying to thread a needle here and let me know if this makes sense of The way that a lot of folks of Asian heritage are brought up is to almost seek being liked and being validated by family. I'm kind of seeing how that might bleed into other parts of our lives as well. You know, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. I think it's
0: had probably the most impact. You know, I was raised by sort of mom and dad who um, who are somewhat polar opposites, and i and I always attribute where I am today to the fact that they are polar opposites and weren't both the same. But um my dad tends to be extremely strict and he was someone who, you know, he very, very sparingly gave you a word of affirmation. And when you do receive it, It's literally the best feeling in the world because he so sparingly gave it. And my mom all the time, you know, she was the nicest. She is the nicest person. But it was almost seeking that sort of approval and validation, and and wanting to be, honestly, actually, in an ironic way, wanting to be respected by my dad. (laughs) In a way, made Mm -hmm. me want to be liked by others. It was it was kind of an interesting realization, and and. On on the flip side of it, you know, it's been sort of one of my biggest drivers in North Star in, in life has been to aim extremely high and be super driven. And all of that actually came from that upbringing as well. But, you know, it's not all sort of positive because there's sort of like the type of dad who, you know makes you sort of challenge yourself to the fullest and achieve the most and holds a very high bar for you and asks you what grade you got and what percentage you got and holds you accountable to the previous versions of yourself, right? Part two is my or type two is my dad, who asks you what percentage you got on the test. I'll say 99%. And then he'll say, well, who got 100%? (laughs) And so it's a very interesting distinction instead of saying, oh, well, you should try for 100% next time, because it almost changes your framework and mindset into thinking, well, I have to be the best. And you get a little bit of your validation from being comparative which is actually terrible in a lot of ways of measuring sort of self-worth and contentment and the reality is and you're never going to be the best at anything you do. There's always going to be someone who's better in whatever measure of success that you have for yourself. And so growing up with that mindset was great from a achievement oriented perspective because I kept holding myself to the craziest bars and kept trying to beat it, but it was it was not necessarily the healthiest from sort of a mental health and sanity and and being sort of content with yourself perspective, you know, it was, it's something that I, I had to at one point in my 20s just come to terms with the fact that, you know, I need to measure my self-worth based on who I was yesterday and who I am today, because that's in my control. And I can always aim for a exponential chart upwards from there. But when all these external factors come in, it becomes, so out of my control and it's so anxiety filled and it's just the wrong metric to measure yourself by.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. Again, like a lot of things that you're saying, Priya, I I resonate with this a lot. I I remember, I remember always going through high school and and college looking for that validation from my parents, specifically my father as well. And I just wanted him to say, I'm proud of you. Yes. (laughs) And it wasn't something that necessarily came ever, if often, and the, the first time your Indian or Asian father does say that, you will remember it very vividly, um, was after I got this most recent uh, LinkedIn job. And, and I remember coming back home and he was just so happy. And, and he's, like, he's like, I'm proud of you. I was like, whoa. And, and, I, and I thought that that would you know, alleviate any of the stressors or anxieties that I've had about achievement and trying to succeed. What it actually did was leave me somewhat confused then on what my metrics of success actually were and what my goals actually would be. And as you've kind of gotten through your 20s and progressed in your career and achieved a lot, how have you thought about that? The, the distinction between like having that anxiety-driven goal setting from your dad and then, and then getting through that and being like, that's not the best way to live life. And how did you reorient yourself on choosing like what that right metric of success was?
0: I'm, I'm going to actually give a parallel that's not work-related at all. When someone tells you it's not healthy for you to need external validation and compare yourself with other people, it goes in one year and comes out the other year. You have to sort of experience it and realize it for yourself in one of these aha moments before you can actually change that framework. And so for me, it was actually, I do Pilates. And so I, I had gone to Pilates classes and all the time, like my framework mindset was always to be like, oh, I must be good because I'm better than these other students in class. And which is honestly a terrible thing to share. (laughs) But, um, But after a while, I started taking private Pilates classes. And the interesting part is when I was looking at my Fitbit, I actually worked out so much harder in these private Pilates classes because I knew last week I did XYZ in a particular move. So this week I need to be better than that. And so I actually ended up pushing myself almost 10x harder in these private classes than in these group class settings where you almost realize that you're better than call it maybe three people who are next to you. And then you sort of give up a little bit or you're, you're happy where you're at because that is the validation you were seeking versus the reality is this, this entire um, career and this entire journey is that, you can always be 10x better 10 years from now. And so it's all about that self-evolution. So when I realized that, and my Fitbit was actually the way I realized that, it was just so jarring because this exact same analogy, I can translate it into the workplace, right? If I am better this week through my learnings of XYZ than I was last week, that should be giving me much more satisfaction than holding myself in a comparative manner to what my peers are doing at other funds.
2: Oh man, we're giving Fitbit so much free organic (laughs) brand just awareness right now. I think they should uh, sponsor us for this. No, but um, jokes aside, thanks so much for sharing that story, Priya. I think it hits home this concept for me of when you measure achievement by the bar that is held by someone else, you can hit that bar because it's high, but you're also on the flip side of things, always parameterized by what that expectation is. What, what could you be if you broke out of that? You know, if you if you made your own rules and set your own bar. So I think that's right. such a powerful takeaway from what you're sharing. And to take this all home a bit, you mentioned at the very beginning, your journey to discover who, so who am I agnostic of who others expect me to be? And this is kind of obscure, but could you share with us what that looks like now? Who is Priya? And moreover, who does Priya want to be going forward? Oh gosh, I truly think that this is a therapy
0: session. <laughs> But I'd say Priya is, is first and foremost, a really, really thoughtful family member. And family is like first and foremost, the most important thing for me. So that's, that's always first and foremost, you know, I want to be known as someone who's incredibly reliable, someone who's who they can go to for sort of all of their needs and someone who's just always there for every single member of that household. And so that's first and foremost on the family side. And then Two, it's sort of my workplace, which is there's sort of three different constituents I care mostly about. The entrepreneurs that I partner with and invest in. It's my my fellow partners at Mayfield. And then it's it's the entire sort of industry of operators, and it's such a small sort of startup ecosystem. I want to make sure that I'm respected by sort of all those parties. And the reality is I can never invest in every company. You know, I'm going to have to reject a lot of entrepreneurs as entrepreneurs will reject me for capital as well, but I'm, I'm not going to always be delivering good news to be able to please people, but I want to be always doing right by all those parties. And I want to hold myself to an incredibly high bar of integrity and someone that they can also depend on at any moment of day. And then the last one is I have a close-knit group of friends and I, and I always want to be there for them. I guess always being there and being able to be relied upon is sort of a theme here. I also tend to, to be an incredibly extroverted person. So, so that's why I need all these groups of people. COVID has been hard <laughs> in this pandemic.
1: It, it was a really nice transition from the personal Priya that we've been speaking about for the last little bit onto who Priya is professionally. Obviously, those two things interact with each other, as you were saying. I'm curious for the audience for you to share a little bit more about what that career journey has been like and and leading to today being one of the youngest female partners at one of the oldest venture capital firms in the valley. And I'd be really curious to see how the intersection of this Indian background, being a woman of color, and now being one of the youngest partners at this VC firm has kind of intermingled and intersected throughout your career? we would love to hear a little bit about that.
0: I'd say it's a very interesting question because <laughs> you're right. It's not just being a woman. It's not just being an Indian American and it's not just being um, the youngest in, in my partnership, but it's sort of the intermingling of all. And it's, it's so interesting because framing to me is sort of everything. If I wanted to frame this in a negative way, which is that I, I, if you sit down across the partnership, I am so different from every other person. And so there's got to be some form of imposter syndrome in there. Like, do I truly deserve to be at this table? And I think that's why representation is just so important for so many reasons out there. But one of them is only when you see different versions of yourself, do you get comfortable that you're not an imposter sitting in that table? Right. But for me, it's been actually really interesting reframing this and not falling into this mindset because this mindset is, you know, once you start going down that path about not believing that you belong here and you deserved it, you earned it through everything that you've worked so hard for. Right. But once you go down that path, it's pretty negative. (laughs) So, so the way I reframed that was, you know, yes, I am extremely different in all these ways across the table. And because I'm young because I'm um, a woman, because I come from this Indian American background, the way I view any single issue, whether it's a potential investment opportunity, whether it's a thesis on an entirely new sector that we're looking to explore investing in, it's always inherently going to be different, my perspective and my opinion, than everyone else at the table. And that's the biggest value add that you can add um, in sort of any room. You want to have a educated and refined and different perspective than other folks so that you ideally can catch loopholes that others can't or you can see things that others can't and push the collective thinking of a partnership forward, right? And so I actually viewed it as a blessing in disguise where I I have this benefit of being able to see everything so fundamentally different from others and that is part of my true value add that I bring to the table. And so that reframing has been sort of fantastic because in most meetings, I'm usually the youngest person now, now, not so much. I used to be, (laughs) now there's so many younger people, (laughs) but, um, but usually I'm the youngest person, and I actually, more than even sometimes the part that I'm a woman or the part that I'm an ethnic minority or any of that, it's actually been the young, the ageism that I had noticed, especially throughout my 20s, where I would purposely try to dress older, and I would purposely try to do things to make me look different and act much more refined and older. I, I... I got this list um, where I was part of Forbes 30 Under 30. And so I had sort of alluded to everyone that I was much older than I was in my demeanor. And so when the list came out, I think people were texting me saying, what? You're under 30? So that was actually the moment where I remember, oh my god, I I need to be comfortable with this aspect of my identity. I hadn't really thought of age as as a part of my identity before, but it, it sort of is. So I was forced to brutally embrace it. And, and since then, that reframing
2: has truly helped. I love this idea of reframing the narrative. You know, you're reframing something that is, at first glance, a disadvantage for you into something that is almost your superpower. And I just love this flipping of narrative. Hearing you talk about this, you sound so confident in the value that you bring, and you're so sure of that. And that's really refreshing. But I'm curious on the flip side of that, having a different perspective, the word in VC land is being contrarian, you know, having a <laughs> <laughs> having a diverging opinion on things, that goes against the undercurrent we we're talking about earlier about being liked. So I, I'm curious how you kind of reconcile those two things in your head. Had you thought through really thoroughly and overcome this desire to be liked above respected and all else that we we're talking about earlier before you were able to have strong confidence in your value add, or was that kind of a work in progress for you? Yeah. Yeah. This is very interesting because I'll introduce a complexity. I'll introduce a
0: third undercurrent where I, I was sort of raised in our Indian household to first and foremost, one of the greatest values instilled upon me aside from like drive ambition was respect your elders like, it's so important for you to not question elders, listen to whatever they say, and, you know, be an incredibly polite human being. And so that's actually something that I've struggled quite a bit with, because inherently, when you're a contrarian person, you're sharing a perspective that one, it's, it's not a perspective that's going to make you the most liked person in the room. And then two, you're Usually saying it to people who are much older than you, who are much more experienced than you, who've just been in the workforce for a lot longer than you have, who've had pattern recognition, who've seen things go south in a very, very bad way, and you're maybe proposing that this time it wouldn't, right? And so amidst all of that, developing sort of the confidence and the, the sort of not really caring what other people think and putting your best foot forward to sharing your truth of what you're seeing over here. It's an incredibly hard thing to do and something that I've, I've had to get better at over time because you want to be able to have these tough conversations and you want to be able to assert your opinion when you think you have something of value to say. And so I'd say that, that has always been something I've struggled with. But what I realized is radical candor is so important because otherwise you just can't do business if you don't speak what you're thinking. But there's a way of delivering the message that will always be uniquely me. It will be incredibly polite. It will be non-offensive. So make it not personal that you're sort of attacking someone else when you're disagreeing with their point of view but instead hey this is this is a deal and i think that sort of depersonalization of it has truly helped me overcome the the wanting to be liked wanting to come across as being polite and not disrespectful to elders and and also making sure that i have the confidence to voice something unique that I'm voicing. So it's definitely been a struggle, but with that sort of, again, reframing of the, the issue, it's been easier for me to sort of open up and have our healthy arguments with people who are significantly older and more experienced
2: and still be, you know, respected by them. I think the one key takeaway from all this is being respected is better than being liked. And regardless of age or ethnic background or all these different, immutable aspects, everyone has something to contribute and something unique to add here. And I want to push on this idea, diversity in age, diversity in background, all these different dimensions in VC, you know, there's been massive steps in the right direction recently, but there's still a long ways to go. What are some of the ways you are thinking of creating inroads and really bolstering this dimension of the industry? I know at M12, you started a program for female founders and I'm sure there's a lot of other initiatives that you're thinking of. So talk to us a bit about that. This, I, this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart because
0: we just talked about why representation matters so much. I wish I had had so many people who looked like me in some way, shape or form across different tables that I've sat around. So for me, you know, the way I look at it, I I have to look at it from a positive perspective versus a negative perspective because otherwise it just feels like such a daunting task. And so the positive perspective or the optimistic perspective is, I I don't think people are men, women, whatever you wanna say. I don't think people, especially in the venture industry, are inherently biased. Like they don't explicitly say, I don't want to invest in entrepreneurs that look like XYZ or have XYZ backgrounds. I think it's just venture is an industry that's existed for um, decades now. And initially, it used to be predominantly men, older sort of Caucasian men, right? And they ended up investing in a bunch of entrepreneurs that generated them great returns. And, you know, VC is all about generating returns, right? And so these entrepreneurs generated great returns returns, the LP, that made LPs really happy for VC firms. And so when it comes to pattern recognition, these, these venture capitalists who've been doing this for decades and decades, they always looked for sort of signs in previous entrepreneurs that they have backed that have given them these great returns and that have given their LPs these great returns. And so that's the case for why things are status quo. People want to do things that have worked for them in the past and can satisfy their LPs. But the reality is by branching out and looking at entirely net new entrepreneurs who look entirely different from entrepreneurs that you've backed in the past, you can find even better alpha. There's actually data that the performance of these outlier entrepreneurs who look nothing like they did before is fantastic. In, in the era of sort of Mark Zuckerberg and, and that whole crop of entrepreneurs, age became a thing that was no longer a thing, right? Before that age was something experience and age and all of that came into perspective, but that sort of shattered that bar And so what's the next sort of outlier category that you can target and explore? But what's the incentive for VCs to actually do that when they can just keep funding status quo and it'll generate great returns? I fundamentally be- believe that LPs need to hold VCs accountable for branching out in the type of entrepreneurs and the type of companies that they support, making sure that they're from fundamentally diverse backgrounds, whether that means race, whether that means gender, whether that means socioeconomic background, that's something that I feel like once the push comes from LPs, now you no longer have to generate 5x return funds or 10x return funds, but you have to generate 5x return funds, 10x return funds plus. So that's, that's my long story on how I, I truly think that once LPs start holding GPs accountable in this industry. And of course, yes, I I did help launch our female founders competition. And this is something that's so important to me. And I'll continue doing initiatives like this. And I think it's super important for underrepresented folks like us to not even give back, but help foster the ecosystem along with us.
1: Priya, I have so many other questions I want to talk to you about these things, but one way we like to end is by asking career advice. I would love if you could take that lens in terms of the career advice that you would give to yourself, to Priya when she's graduating from college or starting her career, or anybody else that's kind of in this age group
0: i wish i had known this earlier but the best advice it's not just companies that have board of directors everyone has their own personal board of directors right and you get to consciously select who you want to add in your personal board of directors and these are people who can mentor you and shape different aspects of your professional and personal identity and so the the interesting takeaway here is not just create your own personal board of directors and and board of mentors. But it's the fact that if you had only five or 10 people for that slot, who would they be? And a very conscious effort to make sure that no two of them look similar so that you've got different parts of your journey and your career sort of covered. As you continue growing, you can sort of replace folks in there and add new people when it needs a refresh. And so this is, this is something that I've, I've definitely learned over time, because I always thought once you're my mentor, you're my mentor for life, which is true, but they don't have to be on your personal board of directors. I almost define your personal board of directors as, as a group of five or 10 people that you could go to for any sort of needle moving decision in your life. And they will all give you entirely different perspectives. No one will give you the right answer, but they will all give you their perspectives, which will inform you in making the best decision that you need to. So
2: that's one thing that I wish I had known sooner. Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian-American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it.
1: And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.